You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. So that was former union agent turned California Assemblywoman turned president of the California Labor Federation, Lorena Gonzalez, at a strike rally for Hollywood writers last Friday. And of course, she was there to pump up the crowd and remind the rest of us across the country that whatever happens in California, which is often considered the petri dish of bad ideas, is rarely contained to California. And, of course, for those of you in California, especially for those of you who do freelance work or contribute to the gig economy, you're probably very familiar with Ms. Gonzalez's name as she was the individual who unions used when she was in the legislature to pass California's freelance busting bill called AB5, which contains the catastrophic ABC test. And, of course, the ABC test is now being exported around the nation, state by state, and is contained in the Union-Backed PRO Act, which is a federal bill currently stalled in Washington, D.C., and is in a slightly watered-down version in the Department of Labor's expected or proposed rules on independent contractors, which are expected to be released pretty soon. And then, of course, there's California's FAST Act, which is a law to establish a sectoral bargaining type of system, giving California's bureaucrats the power to dictate wages and working conditions over the entire fast food industry in the state. And that, too, is rearing its ugly head in places like New York and elsewhere. In any case, California's union-dominated legislature seems to always be creating headlines with proposed legislation that, sooner or later, others try to emulate. So, given that I was on the road for most of May, I thought it would be a good idea when I got back to get caught up and have a returning guest, Lance Christensen, from the California Policy Center back on the podcast to give us an update on some of the issues that California's still trying to export across the nation. Lance, for those of you who've heard him on prior episodes of Labor Relations Radio, is California Policy Center's Vice President of Education Policy and Government Affairs. And to me, he's a great resource or a canary in the coal mine, if you will. So without further ado, here is Lance Christensen. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, Lance Christensen... As goes California, so goes the nation. What's happening out there? Um, A lot of really terrible progressive policies are finally coming to fruition. And people are leaving California with their terrible ideas and infesting other places. And it's unfortunate, but as I've said to a lot of people, yes, as goes Sacramento, goes the rest of the nation. But I also remind people, too, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, 
the really bad policies of California will make it to their state capital, and that's happening right now. So you've already pushed, I say you, I'm talking about California, has already pushed or is trying to push AB5, which is the anti-gig economy bill, out to other states. They're trying to enact it with the PRO Act, and you've you've uh, outsourced or emigrated Julie Sue to the Department of Labor. So what else do you have in store for us? Well, I you didn't mention Javier Becerra or Kamala Harris or a whole bunch of other really That's terrible true. Uh, Californians. Um, we have a number of environmental issues that are coming your direction as well. A lot of the water policy that uh, is really prevalent in California will be prevalent in most other states as well. Um, save the most recent rains that we had, California would not have any water this year. So that's a big deal. Uh, energy is another one where we have tried to go down this path of renewable technologies, um, windmills and solar panels. What we forgot, though, is to make all those things. We either have to buy it from China because the rare earth minerals um, are either there or we have to get a lot of this stuff out of the Congo and use child uh, slavery to make sure that we can have our new Apple phones and laptops. Um, and to make sure that the windmills go on the photovoltaic um, panels can actually convert uh, sunlight to energy. You go down the list, there's a whole range of, of issues for which California had been working on public policy for a long time and has only screwed it up in other states. I think hopefully are getting the message that this is bad public policy and pushing away. Um, but who knows? Um, right now, California is working on um, more centralized uh, governance issues, trying to eliminate different offices in California. They've realized that the people, when they vote, vote a little bit different way than they like. They're trying to um, limit education choices and really expand a lot of the social and cultural issues inside the classroom, take away parental rights. Uh, the list is very long for the things that are happening in the Capitol in Sacramento. So there was something interesting I saw a couple of weeks ago, maybe longer now. Um, so California is fairly well known for its referendums. And so if a bill gets passed or if you have an unpopular governor, the voters can get enough signatures to have something put on the ballot. And apparently the Democrats that control the state legislature are now wanting to do away with referendums. Is that correct or am I missing interpreting that yeah or they want to severely limit it so you have a couple of things that happened back in the 19 early 1900s when then governor republican governor who's very progressive hiram johnson introduced the referendum the recall and the initiative process trying to get more of a democratic vote or voice to the people because a lot of what was happening in california the legislature was owned and, and paid for by some big special interests which is no different now and so what they did is they pretty much allowed for an unlimited ability for people to get things on the ballot. We have encountered a couple problems. One is people will get something on the ballot and the legislature won't like it. So they'll do what they can to obviate that issue or make it so difficult that it doesn't work. Um, or two, the special interests that don't like that, what the people have to say, will take them to court. We saw this with Prop 22. I think you and I chatted about it at right. some point in time where they basically went back to the court and said, listen, 
this AB5 kind of bill um, that would protect Uber, Lyft, and some of these other uh, gig economy um, delivery services, it's not um, legal to pass it through the ballot because the legislature didn't act upon it, which, again, obviates the whole need for the, the initiative. And one judge initially said, yep, you're right, and basically struck down the will of the people. We saw this with Prop 8. We saw this with Prop 187. There's been a series of, of ballot issues over the years that the, the courts have come in and, and have squashed. But we have a bigger problem now where any time an elected official is doing something that's really unpopular, it's very easy or relatively easy to get a recall going against them. Now, this cuts both ways. You know, those that are for certain candidates and and opposed to others. Uh, We're seeing this happen a lot with school board candidates or uh, newly elected trustees right now. We see this with some legislators in the past. One that got recalled several years ago, Josh Newman from Orange County. Um, He's one of the leaders on this fight, trying to make it more difficult to recall our our leaders. Um, So we've got a a kind of a a fight happening right now, and it's not going to be the court of a public opinion that that settles this issue. It will probably be the, the courts that determine whether or not the people actually have the right to continue on with their constitutional um, provision of recall, ballot initiative, or referendum. And it could get pretty ugly here in the next few weeks and months. It's interesting because it's, um, you know, California, which prides itself in being, quote, democratic, is now wanting to somehow re- constrain democracy. Right. I, if you look at the flag of California, it says the California Republic. Uh, most right. people don't understand what a republic is. And right. so when we have some modicum of democracy, which is the, the ballot initiative, the referendum, or the recall, um, yeah, the party that's supposed to stand up for that stuff is not standing up for that stuff. So right. they're they're pushing back against the will of the people and then claiming that um, it's the other side that's trying to limit their choices. And so I, I don't know. We'll, we'll watch what happens with some of these bills Governor Newsom's running for president. Um, he hasn't announced this, of course, because he wants to act like he's supporting the incumbent at this point in time. But he knows that he's got to get national headlines. And he can't have all the bills that he's signing being overturned by the will of the people through the referendum. And so you could see more and more of that happening as we go forward. There's bills on franchisees that are forced to enact a whole range of uh, labor laws and minimum wage uh, guidance that is just, it's unbearable or untenable. It's going to increase costs for the business and the consumers. Um, There's an active, you know, uh, set of ballot initiatives that are going after school choice. The governor himself has his kids in private school and uh, he's more than happy to keep other poor kids in public school when they're not working for them, especially when California is 50th in literacy and ranks at the bottom in pretty much every single metric there is academically. Um, he doesn't want it to have his record scarred. And we could see a range of environmental laws um, pulled down too by the people because right now in California, it's almost impossible to build housing or infrastructure or water uh, or energy uh, infrastructure because of our strict environmental laws. So the people might have a say in this, and he can't give them too much say, right, as a Democrat. So interestingly, you started this by saying that 
you know, and I don't recall the numbers if it's a half a million that have left over the last two years, but, you know, you've had so many California citizens as well as businesses leaving. And I, it would seem to me those that have left are more opposed to what's going on in California. Yet, wouldn't that concentrate the progressive ideals out there even more so? I would think so. Um, I grew up in Denver, Colorado. And so when I talked to my friends in Colorado, it's moved from a reliably red uh, to a purple to more of a blue state in the last, you know, two decades. Right. Uh, they have a governor there who's um, what a lot of libertarians thought was going to be a very free market governor, Jared Polis, because in Congress he, on civil liberties at least, he was a little more open with his votes, and so the libertarians loved him, except they found out that he's actually not a libertarian. He just voted as as it was convenient for him uh, for time from time to time. And so they're watching that all play out. They are also seeing other states like Arizona, where a lot of Californians' expatriates have gone, that that's impacting the voter files. But then you have places like Idaho or Tennessee or Florida that are getting the more conservative um, members of the California emigres, and they're actually improving their electoral odds. So I don't know, maybe this concentrating in some places and maybe not in others. Uh, anecdotally, I have friends that are in Idaho that um, have moved to Idaho. A huge contingent of Californians have done so. And a lot of the more progressive left, once they get there and realize that it is actually a very libertarian state, Idaho is kind of one of those, you know, my private Idaho right. places, um, that they don't want to be there. And they actually move from there to Arizona. So Oh, That's geez. an anecdotal sort of thing. I don't know <laughs> what the stats look like. But when you watch, and it actually was 700,000 people that have left California the last couple of years. 500,000 was a net loss. But you have that amount of people leaving the state. I think that's a lot of people that have just simply given up. And when I traveled the state of California, both in the campaign last year when I was running statewide for superintendent of public instruction, and then this year I've done a statewide education reform tour, when I talk to people, I the, one of the first questions I ask is, raise your hand if you have had a friend to leave the state in the last month or two. And I have yet to go to a single room where not almost every single hand goes up. Right. Um, but then my retort back to them is, well, you guys are still here, so I presume you're staying. You're going to fight it out. So I think there's kind of a there, – there's a very much um, – I don't know, stand in your place sort of mentality where we're going to see the division in California itself become very, very uh, decisive and strong. Um, But that takes a few election cycles to iron itself out electorally. Well, I I think, um, and this is happening in just about every state, you're everywhere except for, say, San Diego, L.A., I'm going up north the coast, um, Santa Barbara, maybe, and then San Francisco, most of the state is not hardcore left, right? And so, but it's, you know, we see this in New York State with New York City. Any of the big cities are are more hardcore blue, and it, it raises a issue or a problem for a lot of the people outside the cities. Yeah, and you just named most of the coastal sort of areas. So 
San Diego's more purple if you go inland. Um, you get a very red tinge uh, to it. Some very conservative places. Yeah. What they call the Inland Empire and Riverside and San Bernardino. Um, Orange County is kind of quasi-purple. Um, Democrats realized if you want to go after the king, you have to swing part of the throne. And so they did. They went after Orange County. I don't think that's going to be reliably purple for very long. I think that will swing back red in the next election cycle or two. Um, but if you go to places like L.A., it's run by uh, a huge cabal of progressives, and they frankly can't get out of their own way. Uh, that the the DA there has been under the threat of a recall since his election. Um, it just came out that yesterday, one of the men that he uh, let loose, who tried to stab uh, one of his coworkers in the neck with a knife, just killed his neighbor last week. Um, these are the kinds of things that a very progressive DA will do. We saw that with Chase Abedin up in San Francisco. That's why they recalled him up there. Uh, the new DA is trying our best to get a hold of things, but you have a whole city that's just absolutely corrupt and, and blown apart. Um, but the further you get in from the coast, the more, I don't want to say conservative, but the more rational people get. Right. And the more economically vibrant it is and um, the opportunities are there. And so I think that's the same with the, what they call the flower states in, in America, You'll leave a lot of the coastal areas or the, the former urban places where big business was a huge piece of that, your Rust Belt and other places. Um, you see a lot of people that just have to scrape together a living, and they know they can't do it if other people are basically taking advantage of their labor. Yeah. what um, What's the status on the FAST Act, the fast food sectoral bargaining thing? Um, so that was signed into law. Um, I think they're going through the regulatory process to figure out what that looks like. That usually takes a year or two for that process to happen, but um, I believe there's a certain amount of pushback there, again, from a lot of people that are going to challenge its constitutionality and and um, it, their ability to run a business in California. If you have a centralized bureaucracy that's required to bargain for workers of franch franchises and um, small businesses, you it, it's just going to completely upend the entire market. So we're watching that right now, um, but it's going to take a little bit of time before that whole process works itself out. So it did get put into law, and I, so I thought there was a referendum on it or something. Yeah, there is. Um, but again, these things take time. And um, you've got to raise a certain amount of money. In California, it takes anywhere from 8 to $10 a signature just to get on the ballot, which I think they've qualified. And I'll have to look. But um, once you get something on the ballot, that's just the first step. And you've got to get about a million. Well, it's 800,000 signatures-ish. So let's just say you have to spend $8 million to get something on the ballot. That's just the first step. I mean, Prop 22, as we talked about earlier, um, I think the total spending on that initiative was somewhere around a quarter billion dollars. Wow. And so it, it's one of these things where tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars will be spent on both sides to, to you know, really push for an electoral vic, uh, victory. Well, and, and for the listeners, the FAST Act is essentially an SEIU-sponsored bill. Um, and I think all the unions were on board with it or at least most of them, uh, to, much, yes. to put into effect a 
state bureaucracy to dictate wages and other terms and conditions of employment in the fast food industry. Does that sum it up? Yeah, that's right. So it's something European in that it's uh, sectoral bargaining and yes. state appointed. Yeah, it was AB 1228. Uh, they are doing the referendum. I just looked it up really quick to make sure what we have there. But really what it comes down to is it takes away the ability for a small business owner to make decisions about their business. And really when you have workers and management that have a mutually beneficial agreement on what they should do, why does the state need to get involved? If somebody doesn't like their job, go get another one. Right. I mean, in California, there's plenty of opportunities to work, plenty of opportunities. But if we're going to go after a lot of fast food franchises because that's an easy mark, um, then then do it. I, I remember just a few years ago, it was the, the what, uh, fast or was it the five for 15, right? Right. In California, I mean, the natural minimum wage in a lot of places is upwards of 20 some dollars an hour. Um, I was just meeting with a friend of mine uh, who's moving from California to Missouri. Again, another expatriate leaving in the next month or two. She's a nurse who makes a decent amount of money. She's got several kids. Most of her older kids work at a, you know, uh, in restaurants. They're going to make more in a restaurant than she's going to make as a nurse in Missouri. Um, so the amount of money, again, cost of living adjustments, all that stuff, right. putting that aside, the cost of living isn't that drastically different once you account for health care and home costs and all that kind of stuff. But her kids are going to make more money than she is, you know, flipping burgers and making sandwiches than she is as a nurse. So in Missouri. Yeah, I might have mentioned last year um, we're in Bozeman, Montana, and Taco Bell in Bozeman, Montana was starting wages $21 to $22 an hour. Yeah. And that's in Montana. Yeah. Well, if you go down the street from me, I live in uh, north of Sacramento in a very rural community. The Taco Bell has a perpetual sign on there starting their 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 kids at 18 bucks an hour with no experience. Yeah. Um, you know, so I, again, it just it's surreal when the market forces will do what the market forces do. But when you come in as a government and artificially raise those costs, it it maladjusts the entire system. And, and that's the problem with California. We have another problem. So um, if you want to talk about fast, I can come back to it. But mm-hmm. I just read the headline right before you and I got on that the goat herders in California who are doing a lot of the fire suppression stuff, the rains in California this year were massive. The grass um, everywhere is uncontrollable. It's it's going to be a massive fire season this year. So they've got goat herds out there working like crazy. Well, Lorena Gonzalez is one of these people that went in 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 one of her parting bills, put an overtime um, wage law that is going to cripple these goat herding businesses because the goat herders are basically on call. Well, they're working 24 hours a day, and they get paid a, a decent wage. It's not a lot of money, but they're just they're holding, herding goats, right? They're not building cars or, or doing a lot of really technical stuff. But they can go from $3,200, $4,000 a month to the overtime laws requiring them to be paid $14,000 a month. Um, I need to get just, some goats. I know. I, I'm thinking about the same thing. But can you imagine Fourteen thousand dollars a month for a goat herder. Now, again, not be speaking. I actually come from a family of goat herders, um, so this is not like something 
that uh, I'm I'm trying to speak at or or that's beneath or below me. In fact, I live in a rural property where I want goats. This is something that I'm thinking really hard about. But if you are to pay them that much money, there's just no way you can compete with it. But it's not just about the wages now. It's about public safety. If California fires start to proliferate this summer, which I predict that they will, you can blame some of these overtime laws as being a part of the problem. Well, so let me ask you, who pays the goat herders? So if I have a piece of property um, and I have them come in, they'll bring anywhere okay, so from a hundred so, goats to a couple hundred goats. So it's usually the person that is um, having their property managed. Right. So it's not the state's the state's not doing it oh, at no. all. Okay. Well, I mean, unless they have contracts for these goat herds to do this, which they have in certain parts. There's been places where. Uh, the goats have had to come in and, and do certain projects that you just literally cannot get to with a weed whacker or a tractor or anything. Um, goats are pretty versatile and they move pretty quickly and they can gobble up a lot of grass. Because the other thing too is once you cut it, what do you do with that grass? Right. It sits on the ground. And I'm speaking from experience. I've seen wildfires up close and personal. Just because you cut it down doesn't mean it's going to stop the fire. And so you've got to figure out a way to address the grass that's still on the ground. And goats do that very naturally, of course. Right. Plus they poop and it's good for the environment. Well, exactly. You know, there's all sorts of <laughs> benefits here. And I'm sure at some level you get a discount rate because the goats might be sold off for other reasons or there were there may be other economic benefits for that goats that get a graze for free, essentially, right? The cost of food for animals and livestock can be very expensive. But again, these are just the simple laws that changes that people like Lorraine Gonzalez make that don't just have one order of impacts. They have second and third order impacts that can be pretty devastating. Well, Lorraine Gonzalez is no longer in the state assembly. Is she doing this as the head of the California Labor Federation and then having her cronies in the assembly do it? Or Well, there's a piece of that, but she, when she left, she still passed a whole bunch of really terrible laws. Okay. So... Even though she left in the middle of her session, other people carried her legislation on. Okay. And so, no, she's not doing this directly, but she didn't have to. She's already put the quarters in the machine, and it's going to go. It's going to go for a long time. And um, unfortunately, most people don't understand what's about the economic malaise that's about to hit them because of the result of, of these laws. Let me let me ask you a question. You guys have the writer's strike that's going on down in Hollywood. Um, and part of that is over AI or artificial intelligence. I had an economist on recently that aside from the writer's strike, the advent of artificial intelligence, he predicts, is going to hit the Silicon Valley code writers, so to speak, or the programmers significantly hard in a very short period of time. Well, it's going to hit every, <clears throat> I think, every industry. I was yeah. Um, he, well, he named two specifically. It was it was Silicon Valley, and then um, and I just saw an article on this. The banking industry as well. So AI, JP Morgan's developing some sort of um, chatbot type device AI to give investment advice and make trades. So his prediction, at least in terms of California, is that. 
you have people working for big tech that make a couple hundred thousand dollars a year that once they get replaced in the near term future, that that is going to cause a contagion throughout the economy because I, those are people no longer supporting the system, paying taxes, et cetera. I think you're right. I spent the weekend with a friend of mine who works for a major platform. I won't name him because the project he's doing is very specific and he couldn't give me too much information, but it's one of those that you probably will use today at some level. And the amount of stuff that they're doing in AI is going to basically obliterate a whole bunch of jobs across the board. Uh, the writer's strike, I haven't even noticed, honestly, because most of the product that I watch or consume any, anymore isn't on mainstream, you know, the three power networks. Right. I think those are all going by the wayside. Uh, the stuff I consume is developed outside of that and isn't being led by the traditional writers anymore. So that's old buggy whip thing. I think that's going away. Yeah. I don't think anybody notices or cares uh, about that stuff much anymore. And we're going to also see too, every industry out there has to be thinking really hard about how AI can make their costs a lot less. And if you're a franchisee, right. And you do any number of things, it makes sense for you to automate as much as possible. Uh, like, the automation wouldn't happen as fast if the government wasn't so quick to regulate everything. Right. Well, and it, it raises the question, though, um, because California is it's a big economy and you have a lot of wealth there. And if that upper income, upper middle class income winds up getting obliterated through AI, what does that do to the rest of the state? Yeah. And well, then in terms once that yeah. spreads, it, of course, comes east yeah so in california we had last year a so-called 100 billion dollar surplus now it wasn't really 100 billion dollars that was mostly on paper but now we're battling with a 35 to probably 43 billion dollar uh, deficit this year for our budget uh, when you're talking about spending 300 billion dollars in total on your state budget that's a huge chunk of change. And that's not just for this year. It looks like that for the next several years, we could have that impact. Well, why is that such a shift? The top 1% pay 47% of all the income taxes in California. Mm. And when you lose, as you just articulated, a huge segment of people that are making north of three or $400,000, you know, safely in six-figure range, when you lose those people not because they moved or left the state, but because there's no jobs to support what they were being paid to do anymore, um, that income tax revenue drops precipitously. And what it does is, it, it's again, it's a higher concentration amongst the fewer and fewer payers in the state. Then there's going to be pressure across the board to increase taxes in any number of areas, which will be very um, regressive in a way, where they will actually impact those that have been paying taxes because they have to pay taxes for the higher cost of other things or for the higher cost of other jobs that are, that are eliminated. And, um, and if there are fewer jobs that are available, then what are these lower income people going to do except for require more government services in California? 
one third of every citizen, one third of all the citizens in the state of California, 13 million of the 39 that live in the state are on um, basically subsidized uh, Medicare stuff in California. Mm. And so when you have that number of people that are dependent upon the state and the taxpayers who are paying that bill don't have jobs anymore, don't exist, um, that really makes the problem infinitely worse very quickly. Yeah, and and the lack of infrastructure spending and all that other stuff, that starts cascading downwards if you don't have roads being fixed or sewers getting put in. You know, it just goes downhill from there. Yeah, and what we're seeing too is I think that the, there's the obvious jobs that will be replaced by AI, um, but it doesn't, I just, I, I was in the car driving home from uh, a camping trip over the weekend as well. And my mind, I just started going through and listing off all the jobs that I could see easily being taken over by, by a really smart person who has access to a, a quality open AI platform. And the things they can do um, are going to be, Mind-blowing to us now, but in a year or so, I don't think it'll be so mind-blowing. I think we're going to see a massive cat. I wasn't one of these, like, um, AI is going to take over the world, like the machines are going to take over the world, right. and, you know, start to gobble us up. Terminator. Um, yeah, right, exactly. But I think what's going to happen is you're going to have a few really smart people that know how to harness the AI the best, and they're going to start eating everything up. So the machines won't take over, but the smart cable people with the smart cable machines are going to take over, and I, I don't know. I don't see a pretty way out of this. I, it's it's going to be devastating to a lot of the lower-income professions and jobs that basically needed to be there. I mean, most of state government, you could replace with AI tomorrow, and you wouldn't miss them at <laughs> and all. And that's, that's probably like chatbot one. Well, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's, when I worked in the legislative office, we had – Again, I work for a Republican. We're the minority in the state Senate, but we still had 10 employees. That state senator had 10 employees, um, six in the Capitol, four in the district office. Um, most of the jobs that, that our district staff took were calls from constituents that needed help with the DMV or their veterans um, stuff, or maybe some local issue. They had some really specific unemployment insurance uh, benefits. Most of that stuff could be taken by a chatbot. Like, and I would say 95% of those phone calls could be taken by a very capable chatbot. If you have an AI that can actually start to do that stuff now and do it really competently well, you basically eliminate most of the need for every bureaucracy in the state. For instance, if anybody in the state of California has unclaimed property, the state can't ever own that property legally, ever. Um, so it goes into this storage area where basically it's held in trust uh, forever, I guess. Um, but to try to get your money out of there, I found out that I had $79 of an old mortgage company that over that I overpaid to before my mortgage was bought out by three more people you know, over the years. Well, I sold that house, $79, not a big deal. But I, I was like, oh, I'll take my $79 back. The amount of paperwork and effort I had to go through and the people I had to deal with at the at the uh, controller's office for the state was mind-numbing. It just was so ridiculous. Um, yeah. A confident chatbot could take care of that in about five seconds. And 
Can you imagine all the middle class or even lower class jobs at all these bureaucracies that should disappear basically overnight because there's no need for them? It's it's a, it's a button pushing thing. And that's all right. we're, we're paying a lot of people to do. Which, yeah, I mean, if you look at the public sector and how many jobs, state, local, federal government jobs there are, and the persons that occupy those jobs, which are typically middle class, they have mm-hmm. pensions that they're expecting in 20, 25 years, and those can be eliminated, which I guess, in a way, AI could be a good thing if you want to shrink the size of government. Well, if you want to shrink the size of government, you actually want to constrain the cost of living and inflation. I, In fact, I think that I was having another conversation with a friend of mine who is a pretty savvy financial attorney and he basically said, you know, inflation is going to be very difficult over the next several years. It's it's going to suck us up and spit us out. We're going to lose a lot. But if we don't allow the, for the market to actually adjust on its own, if the government gets involved in quantitative easing and other things that it's done in the past, then it can be very, very difficult for us to recover. But if you have AI, there are ways that I think you could actually, um, it, could, it could help us you know, wade through some of our inflationary challenges, but nobody's going to want to let that happen. And um, if I'm a provider for my home and my job is about to be taken over by basically a computer or robot, uh, I'm going to fight like, you know, heck to, to make sure that doesn't happen. So on one hand, AI can be very beneficial in a lot of ways. It can clean up a lot of a bureaucratic mess throughout government but then we have to remember there's a whole bunch of our neighbors that are employed by government and by our tax dollars that otherwise wouldn't be. Now, is that a good thing in some places? Yes. Is that a harder thing in some places? Yes. So I, I think we're going to be confronting this issue more um, deliberately this year than probably we have in the last 20 or 30 years, even though people have been watching this come from afar. Yeah. And and the economist I talked to, he was like within the next couple of years, he's calling it an AI revolution, but not necessarily in a good way. And kind of like the industrial revolution, you know, it, it displaced a lot of people and grew in other areas. His is probably more dystopian. In it, fact, it I think he just, used that term. Yeah. And, and I don't know, man, I'm so, I'm so intrigued by what AI could do. I was, reading another article about AI taking some of these old trans uh, manuscripts from some civilization that lasts, you know, that was three or 4,000 years old that nobody can translate right now. There's no Rosetta Stone for these, in these mm-hmm. languages. And it basically plop in a, in a capable AI system that's been trained in language formation. And all of a sudden it's translating stuff like crazy. Uh, yeah. And now it's going back and we're finding out stuff that we couldn't have paid a thousand translators to work 10 years to get halfway through that it can do in about five minutes. Right. Um, so if it can do that and it can basically go through and gobble up every book that's on the internet, um, every platform that's out there, if it can take and basically replicate the way that you and I speak and, and what we think um, it's going to eliminate pretty much every um manual job that we have to do because it's going to think of ways to expedite that stuff uh, infinitely faster. If you, if you think about it, um, like there are certain areas that 
and I'm speaking of geographic areas, and I'm, I'm bringing this back to California, there are certain areas that are going to be more prone to things like AI, automation, robots, etc. Now, in California, and I don't know if this is AI-specific, but AV, automatic vehicles, or I guess they're mm-hmm. artificial intelligence-driven, right? right? Yeah. So you've got like the Teamsters in the state capital that are blocking AV by mandating or trying to get mandated a, and I think they succeeded, getting a driver put into the automatic automatic tractor trailer, right? Mm-hmm. And so I, I'm curious to watch this unfold nationwide if we start seeing that more and more. Are they going to, is, are the Teamsters, for example, going to go to Congress or the Department of Transportation and say, you can't put automated, automated trucks on the highways throughout America, just like we have it out in California? I used to work for Reason Foundation, a libertarian think tank, mm-hmm. and um, it was very, the conversations we would have internally were very interesting all the time. Uh, when I left Reason, while I love my libertarian counterparts, I realized I'm not a pure libertarian because um, I think there's a certain amount of jobs and dignity that you have to have with those jobs. Um, we could literally take and create a machine or a vehicle or a program to do almost every job that is out there. Most of the farming that can be done can be done with lasers and a, and a, and a tractor and some plows and in- implements that are again plugged into the cloud and can basically take care of every major farm out there. But then you lose the ability of the man being with the earth and the ground. I think there's some amount of manual labor that always needs to exist. Um, we can't just automatically plug everything into a robot. Um, that said, we've got to find that balance. Um, I like my food cheaper and quicker and more accessible. Um, I like to be from one spot to another spot, quicker, cheaper, and, you know, in a better condition than I left. Um, but I also don't want to see mass unemployment on a lot in a lot of sectors as well. Um, I think that cities, there's a certain amount of uh, brother and sisterhood that you have when, when people work together and they're in, again, a mutually beneficial system of exchange with one another, will we replace that too quickly with uh, artificial intelligence or with machines? Um, we're going to face uh, another range and realm of issues that we can't, that, that I don't think we've ever anticipated. And this is where I have some small amount of sympathy for those in the workers' move, movement, where I get, I get that they want to have some amount of dignity, but that balance isn't. Um, well enforced by more government bureaucracy and programs and regulations. Um, I think it's a communal thing. I think we have to step back as a community and say, okay, we could pass all sorts of laws to do all sorts of things, but what do we really want our community to look like? What do we want society to be? Do we want it to be a whole bunch of robots that we kind of control and, 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 and become servants to? Or do we want to have those as tools and remember that they aren't the end, they're just a means to an end, and then remember that human beings have some amount of humanity to them that, that we have to respect. We're in a place where I don't think people have asked this hard question deep enough. And well, we need it, to. And it also goes to kind of the, the consequential process of if you're displacing all of these 
workers from what is ordinarily, whether it's manual labor or some thought processes type of labor, if you're replacing them, and of course that's going to take away tax base, take away job, you know, um, services from government. Should we be looking at taxing AI? And then you get into subjects like UBI, universal basic incomes, which you guys in California have tried a few times, you know, so it's all of these questions need to start getting raised. And I don't know that many people are raising them yet. Well, there's something about having, um, about work, about physical labor. I, I have five kids and we moved to the country intentionally for that reason. Right. I wanted them to understand that not everything is going to come to them easy. Um, I have property. So that requires them being out there and managing the property and doing different things. We have livestock, we have fruit trees, we've got, you know, invasive plants and, and things to deal with. We have trees that are, are, are dying. And how do you deal with that? We have any number of requirements for them to get out in there and work hard. And I think that's important for them to understand and experience. Um, but when you have uh, a society where people don't have to work for anything, where everything is an Uber Eat or a DoorDash or an Instacart, um, where they can automate their entire life. Um, I have colleagues that I don't think ever really go much anywhere. They literally will just get on an app and order whatever they need. Uh, Amazon Prime's amazing. You can mm -hmm. get something. I almost think when I'm at places like you know Walmart or the local store, I'm like, why am I buying this here? I can get it faster and better and then have a return policy. It's pretty easy if I do it on Prime. And that's right. a conversation I have like literally every single time I'm in a store. Um, and But I have to step back and think, well, this guy that's actually helping me try on these shoes, like he's got to have a job, you know, um, because if he doesn't have this job, what job is he going to have? Um, for my kids, uh, we don't give them an allowance. Uh, they have to work. They have to go out and, and earn money. They have to, you know, talk to people and to strangers and figure out my son goes and he mows property for a, an old farmer that can't do it anymore. Um, he's 16. That means every Friday he spends three hours working really hard on that property and it makes him think about real life consequences. Uh, he's got to be serious. You know, he has a certain budget that he's established for himself. He's saving for his future, for college. He's thinking about whether he goes to college. Right. Um, we can't have that if everything in our life is automated. So there's a certain amount of conversation that we have had up to this point in time. I think it's going to be even wrecked as we go this next year. Uh, especially into a, a place where everybody has access to this unlimited amount of AI. Well, I, I think you kind of touched on it in that you you moved to the country, and and we kind of mentioned this earlier. Like in California, you got the cities, and then you got everywhere else in the state. Yeah. And I think again around the country, you see the the small enclaves, massive in population, but small enclaves geographically of people in cities that control everything outside of cities. And it's like, okay, what happens if, you know, the food supply chain breaks down for people in those cities? You know, I, I read somewhere a long time ago that um, like New York city has three days of food and that's it. Yeah. So no, it all the, shuts down quickly. Yeah. Well, we saw that during nine 11, right? Mm -hmm. 
when we had the terrorist attacks and that city shut down, basically, I mean, it got really bad really quickly. And yeah. people fled there fast. We saw that during the pandemic, the same thing. A lot of them in the city decided, okay, we can't be locked up here. When you shut down all the stores and the bodegas and the corner stores and the kiosks, when you shut all that down, people have to go for their food somewhere. Right. And so they were retreating to Connecticut and you know Jersey. other places that right. were close by, New Jersey. Um, I'm in a place where if it went south, uh, we'd be all right. We'd be all right. You know, it, it wouldn't be uh, fun or luxurious necessarily, but it would be fine. And I think the cities have not confronted that kind of possibility well enough. Um, and if you have another major economic meltdown, which I expect is going to happen, um, we're already in a recession, which is weird. I don't know why people over the last year, which we've been in the recession, have not talked about it being a recession. A lot of the economists want to act like there's some sort of technical thing we haven't you know, crossed, but we've had two quarters of negative growth um, successively, and it's not getting any better. And the policies that are coming out of Washington, D.C. are not improving things. Uh, California is just as susceptible. And when we watch major bank failures happen in, uh, you know, one after the other in the last few months in California and other places, um, it could get really bad really quickly, like really quickly. And so, I don't know, I feel fairly safe in this place. So um, this, this has been my hypothesis, which is what kind of led me to AI. Um, and so I've been following certain people talking about the population pyramids and the declining population. And the, the bottom line is baby boomers were the biggest generation numerically. Each successive generation since has had fewer and fewer children. So we're going to get to a point in the not too distant future that there's not enough workers to grow up and become, you know, maintaining society, so to speak. China's in a really bad place right now. Japan, yeah. Japan, et cetera. And so my thought with AI was, okay, so now the AI is coming on board. Or is some of that going to, like, will it be a net neutral type of equation where if we don't have enough workers, AI will take the balance of those workers. And I don't know that it's there um, or it will have that great of effect. But your comment about the recession is I think the reason we're not seeing the effects of the recession is there's such a labor shortage still. And that labor shortage is just going to grow. So you'll always have wage inflation and probably other normal inflation, cost of living, et cetera. Um, but we, we may not be seeing the job losses we would in a normal recession because of the labor shortage. Yeah, and the and the ability for people to contract out and do different things, right? Right. Which, of course, Julie Sue wants to get rid of. Right, and 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 the legislature and Congress is contemplating. I would say too. There's one other thing. I keep coming back to this word dignity. I understand the word dignity, like in terms of a worker. I come from a family where my parents are both farmers. My mom, you know, every morning helped her dad milk 200 head of cattle as she grew up. He was a school bus driver. My dad's parents um, were on a dry 1,800-acre farm uh, in South Idaho. Um, I get what it means to get up at the crack of dawn and to work till the end of day, seven days a week. Right. You know, as my grandpa used to say, the cows don't take a vacation and they don't take a weekend. And so... 
Um, I get what that means. I really understand that. I want my kids to understand that too. I grew up in some amount of that in suburbia and rural country as well. But um, when you take away the ability for somebody to actually work hard, I work with a lot of youth um, at church and the community. I'm a coach and mentor. When you have a child or a young person who's never had to do a hard thing in their life, they fall apart at the first conflict. Yeah, They fall apart, but there's a certain amount of resilience for that kid, especially the farm kids. I love the farm kids because you can throw anything at them and they will figure out how to make it work. They will just figure yeah. it out. And I think there is some amount of that that we're losing in this gig economy, not a gig economy, in this AI economy, that if you can just feed it into a computer and the computer will take care of it all, if you can find on your cell phone, there's an app for that. There, yes, that makes our life a little bit better, but it removes the ability for us to actually do something for it, um, to actually figure it out. We can't Google our way out of everything. Right. And so we've got to come to some sort of balance on it. And I think it's a really big cultural and societal conversation that a lot of people don't want to have. Life is easy for too many people. And when it's not easy anymore, I mean, if we were to have some sort of attack on our country, an EMP or the, the power grid were to go down, just like we were talking about a few moments ago, it would fall apart very, very quickly. We would descend into chaos very, very quickly. Sans all of our technology and the ability to adapt a couple of years ago with the pandemic struck, um, the unlimited amount of power and almost internet broad, you know, band and um, bandwidth, sans all of that, it would not have been the same situation. But oh, sure. you just take one big piece out of that, the power supply, the energy, uh, the electrical grid, and that's gone. What you and I will experience will be catastrophic. And I don't think that a lot of people who have not grown up in a more based society will have the ability, the resiliency um, to actually overcome. That's what I'm concerned right. about. Oh, and when okay. people want to talk about these really doomsday scenarios, I say time out. I know what that looks like, and it is not pretty. It is not pretty at all, and it requires us to confront some very, very primal urges. Right now, we don't have to confront those things. So I don't know. Maybe I'm delaying the, the inevitable. Uh, maybe I'm pushing it off for a little bit longer, but I don't see this merry-go-round as such a happy place for much longer. I, I actually see things falling apart rather quickly, and we'll take one catastrophic event for that to, to make it the case. That's yeah, that's um, the economist I had on basically said the same thing. It's it's going to be one thing that will cause the or be the trigger that will plunge us because all of the foundational issues are there already. And whether it's AI, he thinks it's going to be AI, it could be China attacking Taiwan or some other thing that is going to be the shock to the system that's going to crumble. Everything. Yeah. And it, and again, we saw this. You just brought up China and Taiwan. Well, if Taiwan is producing a lot of our conductors mm -hmm. uh, and China wants that access to, right, our superconductors, that for most people is like, what are you talking about? Who cares? <laughs> and, and they're more, they're worried, they're doing this while they're saying, who cares? But they forget that this is who cares. And if this doesn't exist anymore, then you care because it doesn't. It will impact you dramatically. And this, for the listeners, because this is audio, Lance is referring to a smartphone. 
Oh yeah, sorry, I wasn't sure <laughs> if video or not, but my smartphone is kind of like my whole life. Right. I don't I don't walk out the door without my phone in my hand ever, ever. If I go out to feed the chickens, it's usually in my pocket. And again, not because I'm addicted to it, but because I'm connect. I'm so connected to so many different things that it's easier for me to take it with me everywhere than for me to leave it home. Um, and I realize that I'm able to kind of control that sort of thing. We don't give our kids cell phones until they're 16 years old. Um, so they're kind of free and living, living a, a, a great blissful life for now. But at some point in time, they're going to have to confront all these realities. And we have moved from a digital immigrant population to a digital native uh, population to where you pull these things out in a way and China is attacking Taiwan and all of those capabilities we had from Taiwan are gone. Um, it's a different world like that. And we're sitting on the, we're sitting on the edge of, I think a major cat cataclysm. And I just don't know the world's prepared for it. And, and I hate to be, I'm not a doomsdayer, uh, but I believe we should be plant, plant our trees but understand that it's very possible it could end, you know, very soon. So, yeah, I I go back and forth because, um, you know, we've we've been on that precipice before societally for centuries. You know, whether it's whether it's the Civil War or you know Revolutionary War, there's always something catastrophic that means that we're in the end times. And so, I'm I'm just kind of fascinated by. Our, all because the older I get, it's, you know, I have fewer time here, less time here on terra firma. So it's just more of a observational thing. Yeah. And I want my kids to live a good life. I mean, I, I, get, I have five kids. I want them to be happy. I want them to have right. um, exciting adventures in life and challenges. I want them to, to be successful and to figure things out. I want them to grow and to learn. They all have their different obstacles um that are very individual for them um but i don't think that their generation is going to be anything like my gen x generation you right. know i i graduated at a time where life was pretty i don't know it was good the mid 90s were pretty good and yeah, it's not going to be like that forever you know so yeah so what else is what else are you transporting out of the state to us in the rest of the country? There's something I saw about franchise models or not and it wasn't uh wasn't the fast act. There's some some bill in the A B something or other. There's uh oh, joint employer. Sh- is it joint employer? I don't know that I've seen that. Uh, tell me about it. What what have you what are you hearing? I, I just saw a post on LinkedIn about it. It's something to do with joint employers out in California. It's gonna affect the franchise model. It's very possible. I think I think what you might be talking about, if I remember correctly, is is the the franchisor and the franchisee having the responsibilities of both. Right. And trying to and tying the franchisee into a whole bunch of obligations for which a larger corporation would normally be responsible for. Um, I think, that, again, we have an economic model in the United States that we've developed from hundreds, if not a millennia of experience with corporations 
And when you go to mess with something like that, that is so indelible to everything we do in the economy, you can screw things up rather quickly um, and actually massively too. So I don't know, California has all sorts of weird, weird legislations going through this year. And when you realize that the 120 members of the legislature, all of them get a 20 to 25 bills to pass in a year, that's a couple thousand bills that make their way through the process. It's almost impossible for the normal human being to mm. keep up with the, the amount of change and ideas that they have. None of this is new. None of these are new ideas. Nothing's new under the sun in California legislature. But a lot of the guardrails that was there that were there, a lot of the business interests that were pretty firm five, ten years ago, are practically non-existent. I, I mean. There really is no serious business um, enterprise association or group in Sacramento that is capable of stopping anything anymore. There just isn't. Um, the, the California Chamber of Commerce used to be that that megalith. Um, it may slow a few things down for a year or two, but they don't have the power, the energy that they used to. And the other ones that were is that is that due to the makeup of the legislature, or is it? the makeup of the chamber of commerce out there? I think it's a mixture of both. Um, a lot of the chamber of commerce is built around major uh, corporations, large corporations. Oh, okay. They're usually the ones that chair these things and they realize, you know, fill in whatever company and I'm not going to name companies, but fill in whatever major company over 10,000 employees. They large, they likely will have employees in different States they want to deal with different legislatures. They have to deal with Congress because of the interstate commerce issues. Um, they have very highly volatile infrastructure and transportation systems. Their margins are often very narrow. So they want to go along to get along. And so uh, most of the, actually, the business associations have gone from being very free market to pro-business, which is not the same thing. And they've been able to buy off a lot of politicians, mostly on the center left and the progressive scale, because those are the ones that are in power in some of the bigger legislatures like California. Mm. So when they have something that comes down the line that might impact their model, they throw more money at the people that would be harming them. It's just, it's basically, it's, it's, it's lunch money. They throw their lunch money at somebody. Well, you can only throw so much lunch money at these guys before they're like, well, we don't care what you have to say anymore. And where they call them on the carpet and they actually just, they do what they want to do. And so the other organizations that had some political sway are caught up in this huge tsunami of, of legislators that have never one, – one-fourth of the legislature in California has never cast a serious uh, – has never cast a, a state budget vote in their life. They're brand new. And so when you have one out of every four who has never had the experience of making a decision about a $300 billion budget and on serious bills, and all of a sudden they're chairs of major committees making major decisions about public policy, and they're not really heavy public policy experts or academics, they're politicos. When you have that kind of power, it can, it can um, be overwhelming. Absolute power is absolutely terrifying in California. And so I think the power structures that were there, the advocates that were able to step in and, and kind of calm the discussion years before don't exist anymore in California. 
Yeah, it's it's taken a turn. We've commented about this before, but it is, you know, what seemed to be some common sense now and then out there has just seemed to have gone. There is no common sense here. Uh, it's it's power politics, period. And you mentioned a quarter of them being brand new. How many of the California legislature has ever ran a business? Uh, very few of them. Very. Yeah, I would guess. It's, yeah, no, I mean, maybe a handful have had some experience in a management position. But when I say management, they would consider their labor experience as some sort of management experience. Um, so they weren't really running a business. They were just running a labor enterprise that was you know, basically free money for them. Yeah, they don't, I don't know. I, I used to go. Yeah, I used to go down the list. And there was one person who actually had a major business. And it was funny. His name was Bob Hertzberg, a former uh, state senator from... Uh, Los Angeles, he was termed out, but he was at one point in time Speaker of the Assembly, the most powerful person in Sacramento. And then he left the legislature for a period of time and he developed this photovoltaic um, kind of film. And he couldn't produce it in California. It was too expensive. And it was because of all the laws that he and his his cohorts had passed. He moved his business to Wales, to Great Britain. Because it was cheaper for him to produce it out there than it was in California. So when he came back, we thought, oh, he's already had his gum to Jesus moment. He, like, he'll understand. No, he was just as bad. <laughs> like when he came back, it's because when you're in this kind of, when you're in this position of actually creating and making laws, um, there's an, an amazing and inherent power dynamic that you can't experience anywhere else. And so they're, they're oblivious to the actual real impacts of their laws, even if they had some sort of business experience, if you're on the on the center left of the progressive end of the spectrum, you're going to want more centralized government, even though it's failed in every arena, period. Yeah. Well, one last question for you, and we should probably wrap up. You mentioned earlier that California's governor, Gavin Newsom, is going to run for president, yet there's no Democratic primary, so to speak, of, and assuming yeah, Joe Biden lasts, how is he going to get there? I know he's doing so, the, the tour and he's attacking Ron DeSantis and, you know, all that sort of stuff. But yeah, d- does anybody in their right mind think that he's doing this for the benefit of Joe Biden? I mean, seriously. Yeah, he could Nobody. be. No, it, and not in California. At least everybody here sees it for what it is. It's a very plain and naked political power play that he's making. Um, because he's neglected every aspect of the state of California. So I don't pretend to understand the Democratic um, uh, National Convention structure or anything. They had at one point in time, remember the Stuber delegate debacle with Bernie Sanders and right. everything else. I think that whatever they feel like they have, um, every state's now upping their primaries to beat out Iowa, New Hampshire, and California's having its primary on March 5th of next year. Um, I just think that there's so much in flux and in play that what used to be normal or pretty standard a few years back of the last election cycle will not be normal and uh, regular for this election cycle. I actually see some serious, weird chess playing um, happening within the Democratic circles because they have a president who's not popular. You have uh, RFK who's now making um, a huge surge uh, nationally. Um, that's that's yeah. interesting to watch. That's a Ralph Nader kind of thing. It, 
Exactly. And, and he's not just some nobody. Like, this is right. a son of a former attorney general and a presidential candidate, one of the storied Kennedy clan. His uncle was president of the United States. This, and he's been a very active part of the progressive left, at least on environmental issues for a long time. But now that he's taking on the whole vaccine stuff, it's a whole new world. There's this weird conflation uh, between those two worlds. So you have him. Then you have a person who I haven't seen talked about much, but what if what if a person like Gabby, you know, um, um, Gifford, get, not Gabby Gifford, um, the former Democratic uh, congresswoman from Hawaii. Um, oh, Tulsi Gabbard. Tulsi Gabbard, sorry. Too many Gabbies out there. Tulsi Gabbard, what if she jumps in with one of the, the top you know, people out there. She's an independent now. She's left the party. Right. But you throw that into a flux. I don't think that there's there's any real way on the center left, especially a lot of moderates, they kind of feel like they've been abandoned by this presidency. And they're going to want to look for somebody who represents their interests more. And if they see weakness within a president that they don't think can carry out to the second term, they might throw them out really quickly. So I don't know. I don't anticipate that the Biden is actually on the ballot um, come the general election of next November. That's interesting. So you think that he's going to pull a Fetterman and go away for a while? I I don't know. I don't know. You also, just, I said that was the last question, but what is going on with Diane Feinstein? Well, again, that's all about judges. That has nothing more to do with judges and the fact that when you're a political dynasty, which she is a legitimate political dynasty in California, all the way back to the time of her being mayor of San Francisco, like our governor, um, she's not just some sort of ne'er-do-well, you know, old and sickly states, uh, United States senator. She's somebody who's been a, a part of the movement forever. Um, but what also people don't understand, I had to explain this to another friend of mine, that you don't move somebody like her out and then appoint somebody else, even as a caretaker, when you have staff in her office that are used to being at the top of the food chain. Mm. Um, and they are the ones that are pulling the strings right now. And they're not going to give up. They're not going to go lightly into that dark, you know, into that good night. They, they just aren't going to. And so there's a massive political play. And remember, when you're a staffer, in a high-profile elected officer's office, you have as much, sometimes more sway than the actual elected official themselves. Most people don't right. understand this. Right. But you're usually the first. I was the chief of staff to a state senator. Um, most of the time, somebody wanted something done. They didn't call my boss first. They called me first. Sure. And so it's, I saw this in D.C. Yes. It is a dynamic that most people just don't understand. Um, but the politically savvy do. And so they understand, too, that if they can keep the votes for judges going the way way they want them to, they will keep willing her in on a stretcher and a wheelchair as long as they have to, because all they need her to say is yes or no. That's all they need. They don't need anything else. So we'll see that go on for probably another few months, at least while um, things are in, in, you know, uh, in flux. So in California, if she becomes incapacitated, is that the governor who appoints whoever the next person is? So the governor thinks he can do that, but as Kevin Kiley, who's now in Congress, pointed out, he actually has to take it to a vote of the people. And that's why in last year's ballot, we literally had two people 
or, or we had two ballots for United States Senator. One was for the current um, office going forward, the current uh, appointment time, and then one was from that to finish out the rest of that time or to, to go another term. Um, we, in the state of California, it's a little more dicey than that. They actually have to go back to vote of the people. Um, so Gavin's been cute about it, but the governor, the uh, the courts didn't challenge him on it last time fast enough. And so he's able to get away with it with Alex Padilla. But if he were to do that again, it would be a different scenario entirely. Hmm. So they, they kind of have somebody set up for the, if she goes out. There's all sorts of weird machinations about this. I mean, people are talking about him appointing people like uh, Oprah Winfrey or Nancy Pelosi or Jerry oh, Brown um, as a caretaker. And then, you know, having somebody else run clean and in 2024, who knows? Interesting. Well, Lance, thank you for coming on Labor Relations Radio. I, I enjoy these conversations because you're living in a state that has that dystopian, at least from a political standpoint, uh, kind of environment out there. And it's kind of, you're the, you're the canary in the coal mine. I'm happy to be your canary anytime here. <laughs> thank you, sir. So that was Lance Christensen with the California Policy Center. And I always enjoy having him on the podcast because he is full of information about what's happening in that state. In any case, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List. And if you want to reach out, you can reach out on Twitter at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. Give us a call at 888-668-6466. That's 888-668-6466 or leave a comment under the audio portion of this episode. Thanks for listening, and have a great week. You have been listening to Labor Relations Radio. Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoyed Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.